Welcome, one and all, to Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial Star Trek Discovery podcast. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Ahoy, Pete. Ahoy, Matt. Ahoy, everybody. Fantastic Geek, bringing you our Season 2 Star Trek Discovery thoughts today. Indeed, Pete, looking here at this overall Red Angel arc, uh, if you told me at the end of last season that they were going to abandon the structure of the first season, which was kind of a clearly delineated first part, and then what felt to be a clearly delineated second part, but they were two halves of a larger story, although each was its own separate half, I would have said, no, stick with that. Here, the one longer arc, it had its own pieces to be sure, but I think that this is a long arc that worked. And I think an overall more successful season from a storytelling standpoint, beginning to end. That is not a knock on the first season. I love the first season, but you know, what do you kind of have? You have the, the two hours we'll call the, the pilot, essentially the, the Shenjo story. Then you've got Burnham becoming integrated into discovery. Matt, that we don't, step aboard the titular vessel of the series until episode three makes it its own thing uniquely there. Then, uh, you know, we get to that mid season break. Then they're in the, uh, mirror universe. Then they get back. Then they tie it all up. And though we didn't get 15 episodes as we did in the first season to get the two-part finale that we got in season two to get 14 that we're now 29 episodes into this series when a lot of shows on this level might only give you 10 episodes in a season we've almost kind of gotten three years three seasons worth of material in two seasons and i'll add to it yes the official episode count is at 29 for the 14 episode second season but to me lump the short treks together how you want and certainly watch them before you start season two. Uh, but to me, while together they do not form an episode with a 48 minute, uh, story arc to them, you know, there's your 15th episode. However you want to cut the, cut the cake. Is it a less expensive outing than a regular episode? Sure. Is it maybe a way to do a little more, but not given that there wasn't the, monkeying of the first season of you know this first half has finished up and now you know you even if you cancel you're still going to be billed for a week and a half more or things like that i don't know maybe i think you and i both are increasingly moving away from oh cbs all access you're terrible to cbs all access you are a thing that we put up with to get star trek and watch some twilight zone and the other shows um, Pete, we know somebody who's enjoying the good fight and that's yes. cool too. Yes. Um, and when you consider too, with all the chaos on the bridge, Matt, I mean, almost from the moment season one ended, there was this unsettled feeling and then there were changes behind the scene and, you know, there was concern what would happen. And then for them to ultimately come with what they did, real, real credit to the writers in particular being able to stick this landing absolutely and hopefully 
headed into season three, there's the pre-planned change in showrunner, uh, where Michelle Paradise will be in charge of the day-to-day stuff, obviously alongside with Alex Kurtzman. I did notice that uh, with one of the uh, recent uh, news releases, maybe it was Picard-related, maybe it was... uh, the animated show that's going to be on Nickelodeon, something like that. It looked like there was maybe a producer name less or a couple producer names less. I wasn't quite sure. Uh, again, also, you know, it wasn't focusing on here's who's running everything. It was kind of announcing, I think it was that animated show for Nickelodeon. But, you know, could there be behind the scenes stuff again? Pete, we'll, we'll worry about that for our season three. Chaos on the Bridge, Redux again but let's not have one (laughs) let's hope that it doesn't come to that the the beauty of these first two seasons and i think baked into both of them and i'm really interested to see if they can do something similar is the way they kind of incorporated the the guessing game the week-to-week interest you know i'm thinking in season one of the the voke tyler stuff and then the wait, you know, are they in the mirror universe? Aren't they uh, thing that went on? And then in the second season, it was, you know, this red angel mystery. Who is it? Oh, it's mom. No, wait, one of them was mom. The other one was Burnham. I just love that they've incorporated that. You think of all the dialogue, Matt, you and I have had on social media with people in the two years of Star Trek Discovery and the interest into these mysteries that they've built in i think it's been really smartly done and i think that this is one of the few shows that consciously is trying to put that guessing game in there without turning it into a constant search for clues i really really love westworld uh but i think the second season didn't hold up quite as much in part because we kind of knew what the rules of the show's game was if you will like we kind of knew what we could explore and what we couldn't and things of that sort and that there could be time jumps etc etc and while i don't think discovery is constructed to that degree of oh man we are going to put clues in there and we're going to have little details and did you follow the labels on the can dolores drops if so you're smarter than the other people i don't think discovery goes to quite those lengths And I think it's to the credit of the show where you can say, you know, it is weird that we didn't see Voke again. Um, And then now there's this Tyler guy or, you know, hey, they from the from the word go, they've said it's, you know, uh, the Red Angel, if you'll pardon the uh, extra words there. But, you know, kind of they're really hammering home the idea that it's one person. What if it isn't? Things like that where you can have the discussion, but your fun isn't necessarily predicated on the ability of saying I was wrong that it was only Burnham. Therefore I fail the game. Therefore I am less worthy. (laughs) It's kind of part of the adventure of the guessing game and the space battle adventures and the personal discovery and the character arcs, et cetera. And after we evaluate that season long red angel, mystery story which has now wound them up in the 32nd right century 32nd 33rd pete at a certain point mileage the the mileage doesn't count it's so far (laughs) in the future 930 years we know that it's 930 935,600 minutes is it all connected (laughs) i don't know um the decision to incorporate 
Pike's Enterprise and specifically Pike and thereby close the loop on the 52 year mystery of how he winds up scarred, disfigured, needs to go back to Talos for um, that was really inspired. And again, for the for the naysayers, it's it's just another wonderful thing they miss out on. I think, too, in the memory of most Star Trek fans, Pike is so legendary because you think of people our age. I kind of don't really remember a time before there was color footage of the cage, although I do remember my uncle getting the VHS of, I think, the black and white version, or maybe it was like black and white and color because I know the Gene Roddenberry black and white one was floating around for a while. So it kind of was like, you know, in addition to getting him the tapes of all the other episodes, it was like, oh my goodness, this is the Holy Grail. And, you know, I think there's problems with that first pilot, but when you get new Star Trek in the late 80s or early 90s, new Star Trek from the 60s, no less, it, it becomes this sweet, sweet wine where you're not going to judge it too harshly, particularly in view of it not being, you know, it not being a successful pilot and there needing to be tweaks with more action, more adventure, etc. But there's this legendary status for Pike and to have him somehow walk out of this season a more uh, fully formed character than the one that kind of has been in our nostalgic look back is really really it's an incredible journey to have taken him on where it's complete and none of it is in exception of what we already knew but it's a better version Anson Mount absolutely knocked it out of the park you know our first exposure in podcasting a show he was on in in humans which no one will ever say to rest in peace was the type of thing where, you know, we didn't get a taste in our mouth so much in that other than move around and do the uh, sign language that he made up for the character as Black Bolt, as a character who has to be mute because his voice is so powerful it kills, was really not the greatest representation of what this performer could do. And I think the fact, too, that Pike kind of is that leading man type character, you know, I think back to Anson Mount on uh, Hell on Wheels, which is certainly a very fun uh, genre show, but and he was kind of, you know, the smoldering anti-hero, not that he did a poor job playing that at all, but here he's kind of that, you know, just late 40s, silver haired, silver streaked you know, just leading man, of course, in a show where sometimes he's a leading man and in other episodes he's the one to say, but wait, zoom and enhance, shields up. And just to kind of do that clickety-clack kind of stuff while other people are actually the, the leading men and leading women in a number of episodes, it really does show, you know, he kind of has this old-school Hollywood charm along with playing, you know, in the super tight outfit and on the shiny different space sets and things of that sort. I know there are petitions. I know people want to see him and Ethan Peck's Spock and Rebecca Romaine's uh, number one out there uh, to, to do a series of that. And I think we'd all love to see that. But as Matt and I talked off mic this week, how much more Star Trek can CBS all access with what they already have in the pipeline 
reasonably produce and expect people to watch. Particularly with Kurtzman saying that there's going to be pauses in between them. And I, you know, I think back to the famous blog post that Ron Moore had when Enterprise was canceled and had the line, you know, now Star Trek returns to the fans. This notion that like a field, it must lay fallow from time to time and it must kind of be found by new people and that for better or worse, that unbroken stretch from 1987 until 2005 when uh, Enterprise was canceled, that yes. all of, you know, most of those people who had been there for much of that journey, they were just kind of out of ideas and that that was an okay thing to do. Uh, what I find so interesting, not only in the, the different options that we have now where irrespective of a Pike show for a moment, we'll have, we, one can only assume, or not even assume, it has been outright said that uh, the Michelle Yeoh series will be the rebuilding of Section 31. So you're going to get your 23rd century show. You're going to, you have, of course, Next Generation, the 24th century. You have Discovery now sent to the, uh, to the 33rd century. And these are all different time periods and potentially different flavors. You know, I kind of expect Section 31 to go to those dark places sometimes where I think Discovery, while still anticipating episodes that have a TVMA for season three, it's going to be more of that, wow, this is the planet of the glowing upside-down trees or whatever it's going to be versus Section 31 where it's put me in the cell with him and I will break him and make him talk about where the, you know, the thermonuclear <laughs> bomb is and that sort of thing and that's okay and then the adult animated stuff having a slightly different flavor versus you know the nickelodeon one as you say pete and the nickelodeon one may be separate from our discussion at the moment do they really want to have four 10 episode series on in a calendar year i mean they could and still have time in between but is that what's best but so even then, let's say all four ran in a calendar year. OK, you you had Discovery run in the first quarter. You had the Picard show run in the second quarter. You had the um, the Lower Decks cartoon run in the third. And then you had the Michelle Yeoh Section 31 show run in the fourth. Where's your where's your spot? Where's your landing uh, path for, for Pike's enterprise. I just think it's too much at this point. You know, there's a development deal out there with the runners of uh, another show. We podcast Marvel's runaways for, uh, a Starfleet Academy show. There's been like no news out there for that. Their Matt was apparently a, uh, con series. Maybe, maybe not developed, no news there. Like there's only so many spots for some Star Trek on your CBS All Access. Okay, the the one cartoon went to Nickelodeon. I get it. They're trying to trying to you know make the uh, the brand uh, friendly for kids and maybe get them over eventually to uh, CBS All Access. I don't think it can escape our discussion today, Matt, uh, that we wake up and suddenly YouTube goes from we're a subscription service to, Hey, you watch all our stuff now and watch a couple commercials. So 
does CBS All Access eventually go to something like that? I hear from a lot of people like, oh, I'd, I'd watch the, the new Twilight Zone. Oh, I have to pay for it. No thanks. We're going to reach a point where not all these streamers last. And we've given CBS All Access a fair amount of guff, all of it earned. I think that the programming that's out there that's meant to appeal to the Star Trek fan has been compelling. I would include in that Twilight Zone. I think it's had ups and downs, but that is a good adjacent thing to say, hey, you like X is why I like it. You know, for example, Pete, I don't know what the crossover is between uh, Good Fight and Star Trek fans. I guess only CBS does. Me personally, not my cup of tea, but. Uh, you know, again, you and I have both heard really nice things about the show. And is the one going to lead to the next to lead to the next? Because all of these streamers are now training us to cancel quickly when we're unhappy. And then, Pete, it happened with Hulu. I canceled it in the winter. And I got weekly baby comeback emails. 30 <laughs> days this. How about that? And they all deal a little bit different. Like, here's the Handmaid's Tale one. Okay, well, that didn't work. Here's the kids animated one. Well, that didn't work. Here's the goofy sci-fi series you know whatever it is they're trying they're trying because it's now also one click to get right back especially since they have all your info already but we'll certainly see what the future holds for pike and his future enterprise episodes i wouldn't rule out more pike's enterprise i just agree with you pete i don't know that it is going to be in a series format at least the likes of which we've seen so far i do know this though pete Discovery season three, we're going to get more Saru. We're going to see life as an untethered Kelpian and a lot of that journey made possible by the things that we saw this season. That was one of the things I was so excited for in the second season. And I thought we had gotten so much of that promise already fulfilled in the wonderful short trek that showed us Kaminar, uh, that just gave us so much in those 14, 15 minutes, and that that was just the tip of the iceberg to the tremendous evolution that uh, our one of our favorites in Saru would go through. Um, you know, they, they teased it three quarters of the way through the first season that, hey, we're not going to get to his home world, which is called Kaminar, and nobody knows that yet. We're telling you that. Uh, we're not going to get to it in the first season, but in the second season, we're going to get there. I was so pumped and it really followed through well. The only disappointing thing is that if he's going to return to it, if we're going to get more Kelpian intrigue, it's going to be in the way, way future. I think there is, for better or worse, there's this instinct, even among we really secure discovery fans where you've liked all these episodes and you know, there hasn't been major, it's not like the Battlestar Galactica episode where like Lee is in a leather coat beating people up or whatever that kind of notorious, I think it's a season two, second half season two episode that like even Ron Moore was like, yeah, it just didn't work. Sorry. This is an episode. My bad. We screwed up. It wasn't very good. I would say that there's been none of that for discovery, but I think that we still have this default instinct that harkens back uh, maybe not directly, but I think in our instincts, it's captured by that very first discovery uh, panel, which of course we are at, uh, at a, a repop event in New York where the woman said, please don't screw this up. And I think that there's sometimes still is that fear. And when Saru lost the threat ganglia, changing his character, 
that was not a decision I was crazy about. I was concerned they don't know what to do with him anymore, being a scaredy cat or having special magic powers, and they don't want to end up in a supercut a la Deanna Troy where she can totally read minds anytime she needs to except for when it's difficult for the plot. Uh, <laughs> and, and they just want to make him guy who looks cool and, you know, no thought. Um, well, I guess I had some thought, but my first thought was not, oh, man, they're setting up a really great post-change arc. It was, they're, they're taking the thing that we know, and, and how dare they? What's next? If Saru can have flashlights that shoot directly into my eyes, I don't know. Well, look at the way, too, in finding out what the real situation was between the Ba'ul and the Kelpians and the great balance, that it was all a charade, that the Kelpians had been the dominant species, that the Ba'ul overtook them and suppressed them. And what do you know, Matt? We have a significant passage of time that we're going through now where the Kelpian will catch up or will have caught up or will have surpassed or maybe even be equal with the bowel. So I'm really excited to see how that can that factor into our story in season three. And I think too, that's a very Star Trek perspective in terms of are things the way they are because they've always been that way? Is your enemy actually the friend you don't know? Is the oppressor the oppressed? Things of that sort that that comes across as very classic Trek, but I think ultimately are very Star Trek in general where once you get to know somebody's situation and the full context it might not always be uh as black and white as you think uh and i think too that was certainly the case with these short treks i was happy to get more star trek starting in october i was you know eagerly there it would uh, it was 9.30, right? 9.30 p.m. Pete, it would be on. There was the one week. Uh, where... You know, when they remembered to push the button, Matt. Yes, there was the one week where they f- completely forgot to upload it. The, for about... the one we wanted to watch the most, yeah. the Saru one, came on, I want to say, more than an hour and change late to the point where people, we were messaging CBS All Access, were messaging Star Trek, and nothing. But it never crossed my mind that these are critical, critical episodes. Like I can't wait to rewatch this season with my parents and be like, Oh, there are these little things in the beginning. Let's sit and watch the four of them now. And then maybe we'll do a real episode and I'll be laughing the whole time, at least silently saying you have no idea that each of these is critical. Uh, Maybe not the mud one, but the other three are critical to how the season unfolds. And the mud one is maybe the most outright fun of the four. Uh, 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 yeah, of the four. Um, and that almost hides the fact that, oh, there isn't any more mud for the rest of the season. That's okay because we have fun in, in this little mini-sode. We get them back uh, is, you know, the biggest thing I get from that one. And it, it's fun. And you would have loved to have gotten them back in the body of the story. Obviously, it seems like we're done with Rain Wilson's Harry Mud, but he has had access before to time stuff. We've never definitively seen Harry Mudd finished off. So who knows? Maybe he does wind up as captain of the discovery. Hawk and bring Hawk on, and bring on more, more treks with him, more short treks with him. You want to yep. say, Oh, we did two yep. 20 minute episodes. Okay. Let it be like a dumb, a dumb sitcom with Harry Mudd. Like that's part of the beauty of these short treks. And though I, I 
bitterly think it is dishonest to call another Star Trek series called Star Trek Short Treks made, you know, on the side of Star Trek Discovery with the Star Trek Discovery crew and writers and directors and that, that, that. That's just dishonest. But it is also this thing where you throw me a 28-minute episode, I'm not going to complain the way I might complain if you give me a 41-minute full-length discovery that is 20 minutes shorter than some other episodes. So what were your favorite episodes of season two, Matt? I have to say, particularly coming off the, the list here of talking about the short treks, I still continue to think that Calypso at 17 or 18 minutes is one of the finest episodes of Star Trek that there has been. Not finest top five or top ten, but that's the one that comes to mind first in terms of it just having such a powerful story. That's pretty interesting that you say that. And, you know, we had posited at the time, are we seeing the end of Star Trek Discovery as a narrative that they abandon ship, that it has this AI, that this dude finds it? Um, is this going to be the thing we will eventually track and catch up to? And boom, where are we now? They're in the future. Um, will some of the elements that come up, I know, Matt, there's been some discussion, particularly on Twitter, you know, the antagonistic force that the protagonist is fleeing, is believed might be an evil, dark federation, might not be whatever they're going to play around with. You know, do we hear that that protagonist gets added to our season three cast or is it just going to be this fun thing like hey we we showed you where it was going to go eventually nobody picked up on it until way too late and now we're in that time frame or close to it great points there and i'll i'll add to the list to the the season two premiere brother written by ted sullivan and the no longer with the show berg and harberts it does such a great job of setting up the season, setting up the red signal, uh, getting us to the USS Hiawatha, getting Jet Reno going. It's a very, very uh, classic small C Star Trek kind of episode in terms of, you know, a mission and a captain and beaming out. And, so, you know, the, the effect sequence where they're in the suit, his, suits are, it, it is a fantastic moment. And, you know, another great outing there by, by Ted Sullivan and company. I wholeheartedly agree with you. It's funny. You were a little more down on that episode than I was. Um, the the premiere to the second season just grabs you and throws you at the trajectory of this season. Absolutely love it. Uh, what it sets up, the nods to the original series, the things that make Discovery further its own thing. Uh, Anson Mount coming aboard as Pike, even to the point of delivering the line about Spock, you know, best to temper your expectations. Why? Uh, what do you know? He hadn't been cast till like five episodes later. Um, and though we get his Ethan Peck's voiceover as Spock to end that episode uh, in his quarters, um, just a great, great outing you know you you get your investigation of the first red signal you get um the the 
idea of the larger premise that we're going to be chasing these things down. They go on this adventure. Burnham sees the Red Angel further sucking us into that mystery. And then what do you know? Pike's going to stick around. It's not just a a one off and, and really leads you into the rest of that season. So wild about that episode. Pete, definitely need to add to the list here, the episode, If Memory Serves, that the Talos 4 episode, yes. and one where, though I still don't love, love, love the redesign for the Talosians, it is a story that works within the needs of season two of Star Trek Discovery, and also elevates our understanding of Pike, and brings us back to a familiar place that we barely knew, and just a wonderful bit of fan service and season service right from the get-go with the previously on from the original series from the original pilot all the way through to to the the singing blue flowers vena matt if i'd come to you if i traveled back a year and told you we're gonna get vena from the original pilot in season two how would you have reacted i think i would have been uh incredulous at the thought that a they could touch on such uh such hallowed ground and then that they, and have disbelief that they could land that land that plane successfully land that story plane big fan in season two of uh i believe it's a fourth episode right an obel for uh Charon, um with the sphere and that's the episode in which Saru uh, goes through Vaharai, his threat ganglia, ultimately find, fall off while um, Burnham is prepared to euthanize him. And just such a touching, emotional, taut episode. It was, particularly given that it brought the audience to the edge of willful suspension of disbelief it was simultaneous like you could understand they're not going to kill off uh saru but there was every reason to believe that they were going to kill off saru which also is a trick later in the season they pull off with with burnham as well maybe not quite as believably if only because she is the number one star on the show but it was it was an amazing emotional journey that they took you on and i think one that as you're watching it in real time, if you're not factoring things in like the legendary Doug Jones and you know the amount of money spent to develop the makeup and all of that, if you're just watching it without worrying about the real world outside the show, you buy that Saru is toast there. Matt, the more we go over this list, the more I'm like, these, all these episodes are my babies. There's, there's not a dud in this. Um, Light and Shadows is one that really stood out for me. Uh, that, of course, being the one where we finally catch up to Spock, where we introduce him. And we had speculated so much, you know, would they go there with Quinto? Would they cast uh, a complete unknown? A uh, lot worse places to look for your Spock than the grandson of Hollywood royalty. I think, too, with Ethan Peck, I don't know how much... Uh, I don't know how much of a conscious decision it was to play Spock very differently from the Leonard Nimoy example in the beginning for a variety of reasons, whether it's Peck is still learning the role or 
Spock is in a terrible mental state and not able to process time properly. You know, that's that's enough excuse to spend an episode or two figuring out the character. But it really was only in the last couple episodes, maybe in that two-part season finale, where some of those Nimoy-esque vocal affectations were being picked up by my ears. Now, maybe there were some earlier on and there was action-packed moments where I didn't, you know, it, it kind of didn't resonate with me. But I feel like in Peck, uh, again, obviously helped by a story of why is Spock so different in the beginning? Well, he has a massive psychological break, but I feel like Spock's arc for the half season that he's in is one of bringing into focus that Spock that we really understand. So when we get, you know, all right, Captain, I'm done with my beard gap year. I'm gonna wear my wear my uh, my my sideburns a little extra long because you know I'm still a young man. I'm still cool. You don't need to call me Mister Spock. That's my dad. Oh well, never mind about that. But I can wear them a little long. But now I'm ready to be serious and work my nine to five cubicle farm. It's the beginning of the Spock that we will then get to know in uh, in classic Trek. Yeah, I mean, the, the two-part finale, again, over the moon with what they were able to give us there uh, through the Valley of Shadows where we get that Pike flashback. And like you said, to touch on hallowed things like him winding up in the chair and seeing the events uh, that he sees the events and he still goes to this fate because it's all about helping people. It's always about the mission for him. It's about the love that he has for these people that he works with, that he's going to sacrifice himself. So just tremendous to see there. And that, you know, the Boreth thing uh, followed through from that third episode, Point of Light, which was also a favorite of mine. What are some of the areas that didn't quite reach that highest high for you? I think with the idea of control, and what it represented, they fell a little bit short. It always remained a little bit nebulous. And yes, they tried to make uh, Leland the, uh, the 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 figurehead, the face for it. But I think it was a little unsuccessful as a villain. Particularly, I think to uh, some of the interviews after the season had ended, that uh, Michelle Paradise, our our incoming. Uh, uh, showrunner gave where um, where it's like oh it never even occurred to us that this could be something Borg like and it was like look you don't need to give the Borg origin story and we certainly have discussed the whole timey-wimey nature of, of Borg stuff in previous podcasts but that's fine like you every single robot thing ever doesn't need to be proto Borg in this you know proto series but to kind of say, yeah, we never even thought of those other robot guys. It just comes across as as disingenuous at best or worst and woefully ignorant at the other end of best or worst. I'm not quite sure. Um, and that makes me a little nervous because I think the control stuff in general was really compelling, particularly, look, Discovery is a show, if you're going to start with the premise that it's 10 years before Kirk and Spock, but we're going to do updated, you know, TV stuff, including TV effects, Control was a nice way to generate big, giant Star Wars space battle, except we already fought the Klingons and we can't use the Romulans and 
we can't have a civil war in the federation but we can get a big giant space robot army to fight in a big two-part climactic conclusion so the audience will give you that much to claim i don't really know about borg stuff just say from the four say from the from the the word go oh this is not the borg it's just some other robot thing that we're presenting okay that's fine and i think what it did was expose that a lot of people didn't realize the Borg had been dealt with. Yes, they were time traveling Borg. They went back to Enterprise's time frame, um, but they reached out to the Borg of that time frame. So the Borg had already been established that they were around in in, in existence. Um, Pete, I just and- want to point out because when last time we spoke Borg stuff, there was the following opposing opinion which i will share here for clarity's sake there are people who say but that signal sent by the borg was sent because of the stuff that we saw in the next generation movie so if this is the first time through the timeline before picard and crew have gone back then that signal doesn't get sent where maybe it activates the Borg that are already out there, or maybe it is received by the Borg that are going to be there in 350 years. Just want to point out, there's a little, uh, I'm with you. That's my understanding, but I want to, Pete, I want to speak for the people who disagree too. All views are welcome. Idic, etc. I I don't see how it works out. And without the ability to take our listeners over to the whiteboard, Matt, (laughs) I'm, I'm fairly confident in that, if Borg went back to that time frame of Enterprise, uh, they traveled back in time and then they left Earth and contacted other Borg and Phlox even talks about having heard other voices that they were speaking to. They're speaking to pre-existing Borg that were already there pre-discovery. Um, but it's, it's you know neither here nor there. Thank goodness. I'm, I'm glad control wasn't the origin of the Borg because um, I don't think, you, you know, we get back to the, the C-3PO syndrome when everybody is made by or knows everybody else in this massive universe. Um, the only other issue I had that didn't work so well in season two, I really kind of want a little bit more of the mission of the week vibe that we get in an episode like New Eden, where we we beam down, a signal leads us there, we beam down, the, the exploration. And I think, I hope, that with season three and getting thrust forward so far, that they can resume that. I'm a little worried that they're going to be either a curiosity as the oldest ship they've ever seen functional, or... Uh, the Federation is gone and they are the Federation and, and they've got to, you know, reestablish it. I, I'm worried we're not going to get that week to week exploration. I think that Discovery's basic mode is to not do those episodic uh, stories. And I agree. I wish there was that kind of self-contained thing. I still probably of all of these episodes my favorite is probably still the uh the second harry mud one from the first season in terms of you know with with the time loops and all that i would agree I would because agree. it is self-contained and it is this little gem that you can rewatch without being like 
oh, right, there's already been uh, only two hints about uh, um, Leland's eyes and whatnot. And that's what we're up to with that storyline. Um, you know, we live in this serialized storytelling world now with, with everything on TV. Heck, Pete, even with the movies, I don't know if you heard, there was this movie that came out in the last week or two that is like the continuation of a whole bunch of other movies and it appears to be doing all right at the box office. <laughs> um, but yeah, maybe that's something that they put into the mix there. Even, you know, for all the praise that there is for the short treks, to kind of know that the next time we watch a short trek, is it doing double duty to be both a really great 12-minute nugget right. and telling us things that help save the day in the season finale? I don't know. Are people going to feel let down if it doesn't, that we've established this this precedent? is going to be pretty interesting to see. But with this bold ending, Matt, with the decision to catapult us all the way forward into the future, something – I'm not trying to say I told you so, but something I thought that might happen given you know, one mention of Discovery in the original series, which is clearly not the Discovery that we know. No mention ever of Burnham. Um, with all the belly that went on about canon – um, with my own interest in, you know, again, let's get out, let's explore, let's go to where we're not hemmed in by previously existing events and storylines. Um, you know, the, the future is wide open. That spirit is one that I definitely uh, look forward to. And I think, too, I, I don't mean to overly harp on Michelle Paradise, but... You know, some of the other comments that she made towards the end of the season where, you know, you know, uh, Trek Core says, we couldn't quite hear. Was that Una? Oh, yes, it was Una. Well, if you want to make it be Una, maybe have that in the closed captions or maybe have Anson Mount say it in a way that doesn't sound like Anna. Um, same thing. Pete, I could care less, ultimately, who is on the bridge of Pike's Enterprise in 2250 uh six slash seven or seven slash eight wherever we're at exactly um but the whole thing of well we went to the trouble says paradise or um this isn't a direct quote but they went to the trouble to have yeoman colt on the bridge but didn't name her and now completely changed how she looked despite the fact that we showed footage of her from the cage a couple episodes previous now she's a spiky faced you know person Ultimately, I don't care. I mean, what you know? What is Yeoman Colt's place in the in the uh, the canon? Very, very small. But to give answers like, yes, I believe that was her. Amin was at the helm. Man and Nicola were a bit further back. So yes, that would have been Yeoman Colt. It says to me that maybe Paradise does not have the best handle on the the holy grail aspect of this so let's take it to the third third century where nobody's gonna be worried pete about the picard vintage wine and nobody's gonna be worried about how did riker's command mission of the uss titan go and things like that it's gonna be truly brand new and we can't stumble over you know what yeoman cult looks like and i think it's truly the best decision in that you have the things that have happened they are decided you have all that history to refer back to when you want to you can be new and you can be weird and you can get into stuff we've never done before and you know my mind just boggles at, at the possibility 
you know, you think such a large time jump in particular, you know, it, it could have been 150 years and, and still would have been uh, further than we've really spent a whole lot of time before. Yes, we have the Enterprise J that was the the, the time war uh, arc going on with uh, with Enterprise. They they could re- return. We never definitively got who the guy in the shadows was pulling the strings during that temporal cold war with, uh, with Archer and, uh, you know, the, the enterprise back in their first couple seasons, but yeah, they, they get to go, they get to do their own thing. You just have to wonder, Matt, how soon we're going to see it. How soon we're going to see an enterprise or how soon we're going to see season three, season three, of course. Well, I know that Wilson Cruz, just in the last week had tweeted um i think he was going to be appearing on stage or it was to support he was going to be at a in the audience at a show to support somebody on stage something like that but the comment was like whatever the whatever the event is going to be it's in the next two weeks and his tweet was hey la people come out and see this before i leave town for toronto for uh for discovery so i don't know if that means you know, to go do costume fittings and to go do read throughs and to go get to know some new sets or whatever it is. But I don't know what the lead in is. I can't imagine that they have the actors show up six weeks ahead of time so that they can do, you know, matrix style Kung Fu lessons or anything like that. Um, I, I do somehow get the sense that they haven't started off as quickly as maybe they might have wanted to. Um, and we'll see, we'll see with that. I guess the flip side is if you don't name a date 10 months out, then you can't miss the date if you land it 10 and a half months or 11 months later, you know? Right. And, you know, we will be patient. We'll almost assuredly get the, uh, Picard series before then. Um, you know, still don't have a date, but they're already filming now. Oh, wait, uh, or Pete, are, are they? they? Because Chabon uh, said they were and then had to take that down right away. Uh, looks like we're not the only ones that sometimes get scolded by CBS All Access PR. I relish getting scolded by them, that. But uh, the opposite of scolding, let's hear from our fans here, Matt, our listeners, get that feedback flowing. Pete, let's start with an email from Derg, who says as follows. Hello, Pete and Matt. I love your podcast. One of my weekly rituals is to listen to your podcast after watching the Discovery episode. What will I do now that the season is over? Ha! That's his ha, not my ha. Pete, I would never laugh at a listener. Uh, I absolutely love the finale. The first 30 minutes where both Discovery and Enterprise crews working together in unison to solve problems was beautiful. The visual effects were the most impressive I've ever seen on a TV show to date. Every single character played an important role in reversing what looked like a hopeless encounter against control. Just terrific writing in involving everyone. My one negative comment would be the scene with Michael and Spock uh, taking too much time just to draw tears from viewers while Enterprise and Discovery are battling a dire fight while taking heavy fire in the background. I kept saying, come on, Spock, come on, Michael, stop talking, get on with it. I am talking about the second part of their scene together. The first part in the first half hour where Spock figures out, uh, pardon me, yeah, in the first half hour where Spock figures out why the interface is not working was great. 
I also did not, did not understand why Cornwell could not be beamed off since she manually closed the blast door. Mm. Uh, back uh, to the good. Again, visuals. Wow, Michael's fight in the suit with others cocooning her. The space battle scenes, the zero-gravity fight with Giorgio, Nan, and Leland, so many. Serana and Laurel coming to the rescue was totally unexpected for me, and I thought a great idea. As for Tyler coming with Laurel, how did he pull off, uh, pull that off in a matter of less than half an hour after leaving Discovery? And how did Laurel explain within that time frame his presence after having shown his head cut off? I don't want to know. Haha. Mount and Peck as Pike and Spock absolutely set the bar high for future guest main characters. The finale really sets things right. I felt there had been a drop in storytelling in the last few episodes after eight or nine episodes of excellent storytelling. My favorite episodes uh, until this one were all from the earlier episodes. If memory serves, New Eden, The Sound of Thunder, Brother, and Project Daedalus. It also helped that these had longer run times, 50 minutes or more, giving the narrative, giving the narrative room to breathe. But Such Sweet Sorrow Part 2 was over an hour, or which was over an hour, propels Season 2 to new heights. Much more coherent narrative this season than Season 1, and that is not to say I did not like Season 1. My humble wishes for Season 3. Let's please now have Discovery build its own adventures with its own crew, preferably with its own new captain, although not sure how that would take place if they are stuck in the future. Get Detmer, Owo, Bryce, Reese more involved in the storylines. Give them more active roles and develop their characters. They got some this season, but not nearly enough, although it was better than season one, during which they got none. For example, I'll comfortably speculate that if Discovery gave Detmer substantial storylines, she would garner even a bigger fan following as a Trek character than she has already. Glad Hugh ended up back uh, on Discovery. Ash, Giorgio, and Pike can always appear in other shows in development. Let's focus on Discovery and its richly diverse crew. Also, let's please not have outrageously high stakes in each season. End of all sentient life forms, or destruction of all life as we know it, need not be the stakes every season. And will there be an explanation to why there is no chief engineer on Discovery? I'm fine <laughs> if there isn't any, because at this point, saying there is one would sound bizarre with Stamets and Tilly handling every major engineering-related emergency. But some explanation briefly thrown in somewhere would be nice. Or how about Jet Reno taking on the added responsibility? Pete, I think Derg is on to something there. I think onto it as well. Back to Derg's words here. Having said all this, Discovery Season 2 was one of the best Season 2 entries of any Trek series. I was tuned in and entertained all the way through, and I feel like the season also provided a good fill for the time period preceding the original series. I really would love to see Discovery go at least five seasons. There is so much to be accomplished here. And one more time, thanks for a great podcast. I listen with pleasure every week. Can't wait to hear this one. Pete, that's from Derg, who leaves his Twitter, which is uh, Mark, A-L-I-A-N, Derg. So M-A-R-K-A-L-I-A-N-D-U-R-G. Pete, your thoughts from Derg's wisdom. Well, first of all, thank you so much for that thoughtful email, Derg, um, which sounds like somebody saying Doug and saying Derg. But uh, there you go. Um, yeah, I would agree with almost every point that you made. Um, one thing you didn't, I'm really hopeful to see, you know, that non Commander Non went to the future uh, X of the Enterprise 
uh, on Discovery and that we have uh, Rachel Antrell there. Really looking forward to see her continue to develop. Uh, we got to know her more. I, I think we got a little bit more. I think we got a lot more of that bridge crew than we got in the first season. I think we've seen them grow. I think we've seen it happen organically now that they're going to be a family ever more, uh, more than ever in the future. I, I think it's going to be such a natural way to continue to see more and more and learn more about them. Pete, let's now move to an email from Mark Hensley, who has a question that I hope we can answer. Uh, he says, I've rewatched the first and final two episodes a couple of times, and there seems to be a discrepancy in the count for the red signals. The first episode stated there are seven signals, and over the season, Discovery investigates five of those signals. One, the asteroid slash USS Hiawatha. Two, Terralesium. Three, Kaminar. Four, Borath. Five, Zahia. Six, question mark, question mark, question mark, and seven, the final signal. I placed the signal at the end of season seven as number seven because that is what was displayed on screen. See yes. attachment one, where he has sent a picture of that. I originally thought that the missing signal was when Burnham led Discovery through the wormhole, but isn't this the, the Zahia signal? Some of the signals actually appear to occur after they appeared. Timey-wimey stuff, I'm sure. Or were, were there two signals at Zahia? The initial map shown at the end of Brother, when Burnham was in Spock's quarters, clearly showing seven distinct signals spread throughout the galaxy. The closest would be the 5-6 pairing. However, uh, one of those should be the final signal, at least based on the position displayed on the Enterprise screen at the end of Such Sweet Sorrow Part 2. Did I miss something, or more likely, do you think it was just a miss in the writer's room? Your thoughts, Pete? I don't think it was a miss. Consider, too, that Burnham's signal that is leading discovery they're traveling at ridiculous speeds they're traveling through the wormhole they're traveling through time so you know can we suppose it's the closest to zahia but far enough away that it's its own thing that was indeed the sixth signal pete let's now listen to a voicemail from jt atkins guys jt atkins here Okay, so Discovery is now the ship who must not be named, as well as her crew is the crew who must not be named. Tyler's the head of Section 31. What if the new Section 31 series is Star Trek Discovery Section 31? Huh? After all, they've got um, Georgiou with them, and she's in the Section 31 series, right? So what's that mean? More adventure, obviously. Does that mean also that Pike's Enterprise gets uh, a season or two? I mean, sure, it can't go on forever, but it can go on for a while, right? I don't have my timelines down perfectly. But anyway, what an amazing season finale. What surprising futures there must be. Looking forward to more. Pete, I think JT here, he, he gets to the central hot potato question. How is there a Georgiou Section 31 show that Kurtzman has repeatedly said, you know, is the building, the rebuilding of Section 31 into something that is more stealth, something that ends up at the Deep Space Nine version of it. How can that be when she's in the future? Um, I know we've discussed the possibility of that seventh signal is sending Giorgio back to the 23rd century, but um, we are not guaranteed to that. JT proposing maybe that's right. a show that takes place in the far off future. 
Yeah, that was the first thing that occurred to me when she went forward. Um, but they can play around with it. We know that that show is pitched. We know that uh, Bo Yun Kim and Erica Lipholt are going to run it. Um, we know that it is slotted to come on the air approximately 2021 after a third season of Discovery. So because she went with them to the future, she could, in theory, have adventures with them in this third season and then at some point get sent backwards. Next up, Pete, let's hear from Robert T. Frost on Facebook. Matt and Pete, now that's a finale. I give it a 3.5 out of 4 on the Twitter poll for the minor quibbles that were outlined by Fred. I felt the same thing when the torpedo detonated. How could the blast door protect Captain Pike? We don't know what kind of warhead the torpedo had, but the standard Federation torpedo is a photon torpedo, which has a matter-slash-antimatter warhead, so I theorize that this torpedo was something special developed by Section 31. The corridor fight in which the gravity inducers were malfunctioning was absolutely fantastic, and he spelled it right, Matt, with a P and an H. Yes. If anyone, we have nothing to do with that. Sorry, <laughs> but, but we'll take their, their, their credit and the association. Uh, if anyone would like to see how the physical special effect was shot, go to YouTube and search for a stare unwound HD. And a stare is spelled A S T A. I R E. Um, you'll see how the shot was done for the Fred Astaire ceiling dance in the movie Royal Wedding. I absolutely love the Enterprise Bridge, the color, the console buttons, the navigators and science station view scanners. But what especially caught my attention was the background sound. All the beeps, boops, whistles, and alarms right from the original series. The Kelpians, are they rapidly progressing in their relationship with the Ba'ul, or have the oppressed become the oppressors and taken the Ba'ul technology? I admit, I signed the petition to have Anson Mount stick around as Pike, but I signed it with the same fatalism I have when I put down my $2 for a Powerball ticket. Chances of winning a million to one, but if you don't play, you can't win. All in all, this was an extremely satisfying season of Star Trek, and I'm looking forward to Picard, your friend, Bob. Well, we'll talk Picard in a minute or two, Matt, but what do you make of Bob's email here? Well, I would say from one Bob to another, uh, you and I were both a little dismissive on the podcast in terms of uh, you know, what does a petition do? And uh, our pal Bob Keeley, uh, a wise and kind man, as as is everyone who gets in touch with us, but certainly a wise and kind man, uh, had sent a little tweet that was like, you know, Star Trek season two, after that, there was a fan petition movement, and that worked out pretty well for Star Trek. So um, fatalism that Robert T. Frost mentions I guess here's the central question, Pete. We can maybe put it to those who we have in the shadows of Star Trek. Um, were they expecting the amount of fan approval from 
or, or given to rather Anson Mount, Rebecca Romaine, and the Enterprise. Uh, were they surprised by that, or was it always? I mean, it might have always been meant to be this cute little bonus that you get, and maybe that's even underselling it. But it might have been meant to be this wow factor, but not something that people say, "Yes, give me more of that." Oh, in a discovery scenario where now discovery is in the thirty-second century, and the Section Thirty-One show, let's assume that's going to be twenty-third century as well, but that's going to give us a certain kind of deep space nine darkness can you just give us weekly you know oh man it's the people where they you know again where they have floating trees and we have some sort of great thing where in the end we learn let's all be together and be friendly you know what was the plan there or was it just focus on let's make a great season i don't know but yeah pete i think you know worse things have happened than fans petitioning for things well, Pete, speaking of fans, our fans always petition to hear more of Fred in the Netherlands, so let's hear a little from him. Hello, Matt and Pete. This is Fred from the Netherlands with some Season 2 Discovery, Star Trek Discovery feedback. First off, I think Alex Kurtzman and others did a very nice job on restoring what happened in the Season 1 of Discovery. It was Star Trek, and all the Star Trek we get is good, but still. I had some problems with the first season, and especially, of course, with the Klingons and the story a little bit. So what actually season one did for me is getting to know the characters better, and that was about it. And if you look at the story, although it's serialized, I think they did a very nice job in restoring more or less the normal between air quotes star trek world the season was of course with its visual effects very very nice i took a lot of screenshots and if anybody is interested you can see those screenshots at naya a competitor fellow podcast if you go to golden spiral media and you uh, have a look there at the blog post of star trek discovery podcast with brian and ruthie you can see in the blog post a lot of my screenshots of every episode so and at, and certainly for the last few episodes you get actually a visual summary of the whole episode and a lot of symmetry and a lot of nice lighting what was a bit too much was the shiny floors cannot imagine who is cleaning that well they had some bots that were doing it but that gave an extra symmetry dimension and it was a bit too much very pleased that we finally got our enterprise and i really wonder if they will use it in the section 31 series although georgiou should come back somehow from the future 930 years in the future because she was on discovery or is she going to be in a series that also plays in that future i don't think so is it really a section 31 show or is it going to become an Enterprise show or will the Enterprise with Pike and number one so Anson Mount and Rebecca Romaine will be a part of the section one section 31 show with Michelle Yeoh so I really wonder how they are going to construct it the discovery going 930 years in the future and being there possibly alone you don't know what is left of Starfleet in that future but I get a little bit an Star Trek Voyager feeling so being all alone in a distant galaxy 
they go to the Terralisium, so they go to the Beta Quadrant. So it's so it is it's it's far away anyhow. And going that much into the future, I don't know what historical records they will create. So let's say they are in the period 930 years from where they left. But if they find all kinds of historical stuff that happened before that, that means that every series that comes after Deep Space Nine and Voyager perhaps a little bit has to take these things they put in the future discovery uh, into account so if they are wise and they ever plan a series that takes place after deep space nine voyager they should not give us too much details about the history that's there when they land up in uh, the future of 930 years from now because every other series will end up in a problem uh, they are much relieved of course that they don't have to pay attention to canon that much anymore on the other hand i really hope a five years mission of enterprise before kirk and then they do have to account for canon with anson mount and spock and rebecca romaine number one so this is my final view on star trek discovery my hopes for the future and thanks again for the very nice ride together with you about this series and I was lucky that you extended your deadline for today's feedback. Greetings, all the best, Fred from the Netherlands. Well, Pete, always a pleasure to hear from Fred. And I know behind the scenes in, in the real world, outside our podcasting fun, there were a couple of, uh, couple of uh, fun adventures and life adventures and some whatnot that, uh, that uh, well, made the podcast come out now versus a little earlier. So the fact that it suited fred as well certainly was a good bit of timing there want to hit on a couple of things he discussed about season two better than season one your thoughts pete i think it might be again i you don't pick which of your children you, you love better if you have two i don't have any um but you know i i love them both for different things the recency bias of season two, I think, is a real thing. So I don't know if I can say it just yet. Something else that Fred brought up, this idea of is there is there anyone out there in the 32nd century? <laughs> Pete, we had the earlier uh, feedback, you know, let's not do a season where and all life will end unless we solve this. Maybe they get there and all life has ended. I don't know. But um, Fred Asking that question reminded me of a tweet discussion I had come across and then got looped into uh, this on Twitter by Young, Y-U-N-G, Neocon. Pete, the bottom line being that he points out that the word Vidraish is, uh, to use his words, the syncopated form of the word federation. I could not make sense of it. I said, can you just explain that? And he said, Vidraish uh, is federation syncopated. Remove the E's and the end and day it i think he means say it out loud then f w i w pete i must not be down on the text speak is that for i don't know what what f w i w means but uh asimov invented this technique in sci-fi i think he means sci-fi so i still don't quite understand how if you take out the e and the n how it becomes vidraish i will grant you that f d r is kind of like v d r you know, Federation, Vidray, something like that. Apparently, the writer of the episode, Michael Chabon, 
said, yes, this is what I had wanted to do here. Um, so I'll take Chabon's word for it. And I guess young Neo Khan was right here in pointing that out or in sharing that information that Chabon had, had um, gotten out there on the internet. But your thoughts, Pete, that it might have been the big bad Federation who were the baddies in Calypso. That would certainly provide an interesting idea going forward. Um, you know, I, I keep coming back to how would a Federation in the future receive discovery? Like you, you'd want to put it in a museum or they show up and no one's ever developed a spore drive and you have something more advanced than they have in the future. Um, I, I really want to see it play out, Matt. Can we just fast forward to the 32nd century where we've already watched this for like such a long time? <laughs> and been able to analyze it. Well, certainly, Pete, we need to take the coming months one day at a time. We can't go through with some sort of time warp bubble thing, uh, nor do we have the necessary pin particles or time suits or whatnot to go back in time, forward in time, etc., Certainly, we have other Star Trek to be talking about on the horizon, though. Yes. Uh, if you are on the lookout for another Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, um, you might find one if you do a little digging. Yes, we officially now have on iTunes our, uh, our Picard series podcast by Fantastic Geek. Um, the name of that will change probably once the Picard series gets a uh gets a you know title but in the interim you search up a card you search up fantastic geek on itunes you'll find us there of course if you're subscribed to the pop culture podcast you'll get those episodes as well and we're in this in-between space of when's the next picard podcast going to be i don't know when there's news from it you know until then it's kind of we're, we're in that holding pattern until Pete, until social media has the pictures of people beaming down and saying welcome to the show so and so or you know first footage or whatever it might be first flight we have the cast we've we've covered that we don't have characters other than of course jean-luc picard uh no, knowing whether he's a captain admiral president god emperor whatever uh role they're going to give him uh but that is up for your listening pleasure we have our avengers endgame extraordinaire uh extravaganza podcast almost two hours of talk on the big movie there that's breaking all the box office records we're going to be bringing you our agents of shield season six preview that of course uh bows uh season six a week from today as we're recording um friday may 10th and we're going to be throwing you a uh cloak and dagger the sixth episode of the second season of cloak and dagger on sunday so really busy through the weekend and beyond. But Matt, who makes it all possible? Pete, our patrons on patreon.com slash fantastic geek are the ones that help make it possible. They are our crew. They are our Detmers. They are our Owos. They are the Reese and the Bryce to us. And uh, also, you know, some goodies on there that don't end up other spots. So always a great time to head over to patreon.com slash fantastic geek. Absolutely. Could not do it without you. And everybody who contributes gets access to exclusive podcast content. So definitely stuff to check out there. 
Well, Pete, with that, we get to the end of Star Trek Discovery Season 2. We'll, Pete, we're not putting this, this feed in mothballs. We're not saying now you have to return to space dock to be decommissioned. We, of course, will update the Discovery feed when there is new Discovery news. I think probably, too, next time there's some Picard news, we'll, we'll hop on this feed as well and say, hey, don't forget, here's the latest in the Picard series. Here's the title. And, you know, and now we're officially taking Picard news over to the other feed. Uh, but can't wait to talk more discovery again. This is the, this is the, uh, the, the North star in my sky in terms of the TV viewing and certainly the things we podcast, it's gotta be top of the list, but Pete tops of our contact lists. How can people be in touch with you? You can find me on Twitter at Peter P I E T E R J K L R K E T E L A A R 10,439 followers can't be wrong and while i'm personally on twitter as looking back lost do be in touch with the podcast comment on fantasticgeek.com check us out on twitter on instagram on gmail where we are fantastic geek as well but wait there's more facebook.com slash fantastic geek all one word with the p with the h with you today with that pete i'm gonna say adios for the season and give you the season two final word We'll send you a signal. <laughs>